You are my God and you saved my soul. Amen. Good morning. How is everybody? It's great to see you all. Thank you all for being here at church this wonderful Sunday morning. Uh, my name is Jeremiah Smith. I'm the pastor here at University Baptist Church and want to extend a personal welcome and greeting to all of you for joining us in worship today, especially to any guests and visitors that might be with us. As is often the case, if you are a guest or a visitor, we would love to connect with you and, and get to know you a little bit better. And so there are a couple of ways in which we provide that opportunity for you. The first would be that if you look in the back of the pew, you could see a little welcome card. If you're not within arm's reach, then somebody can hand you one. But that allows you to fill out just some basic information for us so that we can follow up with you and answer any questions that you may have during this season of your life. Uh, if you don't uh, have access to one of these cards, then you can also text the word guest into the number that's then up on the screen. And that allows us to, to get a similar amount of information so that it, once again, we can reach out to you and connect with you on a personal level. Uh, and so we just want you to feel welcome. We're glad that you're here, and we look forward to all that is going on. <laughs> yeah, there we go. You got all that? All right, that's the test that we also have for all the guests and visitors. You're going to have to do a quiz on everything you're seeing. Uh, another way to, to take a look at it, we'll get that fixed here in just a moment, is on the inside of your worship guide, we have some other key announcements that we would love to point out to you. Uh, at the Well is an, a ministry for the women in our church, and they will be meeting on Tuesday, May 8th at 7 p.m. in room 100. So we want you to put that on your calendar. We'd love for you to attend. It's a great way to hear just how God is working on the lives of some of the women and some of the people in the community. Uh, we also would point out that we've got this really unique opportunity for the Van Cliburn uh, concert that's going to be happening on May 14th, and this is going to be a kind of a kid-friendly environment, and so it'll be a really unique opportunity here in the sanctuary of our church. You can see more information on those two announcements as well. Uh, as you're looking through the worship guide, a couple of changes that I would point out to you uh, is that we actually have a special opportunity in the service today to recognize our college and grad school graduates and so we're excited about that, which means we're actually going to forgo the typical time with children. Uh, kids, we're going to ask you that during the offering time, uh, you can meet Miss April over here at the, my left, your right, and she will take you where you need to go if you want to be a part of Kids Connect uh, during uh, the service. Uh, because prior to that, here in just a moment, we're going to acknowledge Mason to come up here and give a word of congratulations to some of the graduates that are part of our church family. So we look forward to that as well. Uh, finally, before I pray for us and we continue, I would also tell you that uh, today will mark the last day of our series in Worthless Worship, this look into modern-day idols. And uh, it should be kind of a, a catch-all, wrap-up summary, so to speak. We'll have several things that we'll want to talk through. But I also want you to know that that means next week we'll start a new series where we're going to be going through an Old Testament book of the Bible. I want to make sure that we have a a full uh, dietary exposure to the scriptures. That we've spent a lot of time in the New Testament with Mark, Colossians, 1 John, 
And I'm excited just to go through a book of the Bible in the Old Testament. It'll be a a familiar book for you. We're going to go through the book of Jonah. And we're going to actually take our time. So rather than just a chapter a week like I've done before, we're going to go through it uh, much more intentionally and a little bit more in depth. And so hope you'll be back with us next week as we move forward uh, in a time of worship by going through the book of Jonah. So all that said, glad you're here. And this is more than just an opportunity for us to fill our schedules with events and activities but an opportunity to worship the living God. And so let me pray for us, and then we'll ask you to greet each other. Father in heaven, we love you, and we are grateful for this opportunity to come and and celebrate the fact that you save our souls, and we are yours forevermore. And so may our time together be rich with that encouraging truth. Uh, May we be able to, to express this love and devotion, not just to you, but to one another, as we seek to honor you today with our praises. We pray this all in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. Let me ask you all to stand and greet one another. Kids, stay with your parents. All right, you can go ahead and make your way back to your seats and have a seat, and Mason's going to come up and lead us in our recognizing of graduates this morning. Well, good morning. My name is Mason Law, and I'm the college pastor here at University Baptist Church. So today, hello, today is a special Sunday. It is a Sunday that we have the privilege and honor to recognize our 2018 UBC college graduates. Can we put some hands together for them? <laughs> it's exciting that we actually have not just college students, but college students that graduate. <laughs> so with that, we want to celebrate that to the fullest. For me, I graduated four years ago, which is fairly recent But at the same time, some time has still passed. And I started thinking, if I was in their position right now, what would I have loved to just tell, like, what would I have loved to just tell myself? What advice could I give? And so I pondered through some ideas, and I started thinking about, you know, be yourself, dream on, you know, anything sort of of that realm. But then I, the one thought that kept prevailing in my mind is the one that I talked to just the students about all the time, I talk to anybody that I meet, and it's the point of to bloom where you're planted. To bloom where you're planted. Because for me, I've met throughout my life sort of a category of about two different types of people. You meet the people who are so focused on the future that that's, uh, that's all they can think about. 
As soon as I get that new car, that new house, that full-time job, then life will be set. And they become fixated on what else is out there. And then you sort of have this other camp that thinks about the past. They think about their golden years, so to speak, their youth, whether that be middle school, hopefully not you, high school, college, whatever it is, they tend to just reminisce and they think about, those are the days that I wish I could get back. And for me in my life, I hear that and it makes me sad because for me, I want to live today to the fullest. I want to live this season of my life with everything that I have for God because he's given me this day and he's given me this opportunity. And so just thinking to these college graduates and thinking about just my life in general, I, when you begin to think about the future and the opportunities that are out there, there's no guarantee of that. There's no guarantee that job will come through or that husband or wife will come through. There's no guarantee on their health. And then if you reminisce about the past, that's happened. There's nothing you can do to change that. It's done. But what I want to tell you is that today is what the Lord has given to us. And although it may not be the best season, it may not be the most fruitful season, God says he is sufficient for it and that he is enough. And he says with the days that we have been given to rejoice and be glad in it. And so 2018 seniors, I look at you right now and I say, whatever situation you're in in life, to truly live and not just exist, to thrive and not just survive, to truly bloom where you are planted. And so with that, I'd like to go ahead and have Anita come up, who is our chair of college ministry. Uh, just real briefly, Miss Anita has been so crucial, and also Tim and Cheryl Wilson and Kathy, just to the success of these these students that I've seen throughout this whole year. And so just thank you. If you see them, thank them for even half of the success that has happened with these students. And so um, as I call them up by name, they're going to line in the front. I ask that you do hold the applause until the end when we can all get behind it. Um, but then at the end, Anita is going to pray for these students because here at UBC, we want to send these students off. We're not, oh, you graduated, we're done with you. No, we want to be a lifelong process. If they ever need to come back to anything, that we're going to be here for you. And so with that being said, let's begin. To begin, we have Emily Burgess, who will be graduating with a Bachelor of Science in Biology from Texas Christian University. Next, we have Alex Calva, graduating with a Master's of Education, Administration, and Structural Learning from Abilene Christian University. We have Jordan Hutter getting her certificate in radiation therapy from UT Southwestern School of Health Professions. We have Alexis Jefferson, Bachelor of Science in Biology from Texas Christian University. We have Ms. LaVon Lucero getting her WIBE certificate from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We have Kristen Pickering getting her Bachelor of Science in Biology with a French minor at Texas Christian University. Just three honorable mentions here. We have Biak Serre graduating from the Bachelor, graduating with a Bachelor of Combined Science from Texas Christian University. We also have J.D. Newton getting his Master's of Business Administration at Texas Christian University. 
And we also have Brian Wolfskill getting Juris Doctorate degree at Baylor University. These are the 2018 right here graduating seniors. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for this beautiful day. Thank you that we are here to worship you and to honor these students, Lord. I thank you for their lives. I thank you for the friendships that were formed here at UBC. I thank you for the hours that they spent here, um, whether it's in the children's ministry or on missions or just with the college students, Lord. I thank you for just the friendships that were formed. And I ask for wisdom and discernment for their next steps, Lord, and that they know that you are there and so are we, Lord to guide them, to be there with them, to lift them up when they, they need it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. And what a blessing it is to share in the joy of the accomplishments of our brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, for each of them, a season is ending, but a new one is beginning. And uh, I think it's important for all of us to recognize the seasons that God, that God has us in and to be following where he leads us. Um, just like Jeremiah shared last week how the Lord is our shepherd, whether he leads us by still waters or through the valley, he's calling us to rest and to trust in him. So let's stand together as we sing this next song and remind each other of how the Lord leads us and how we ought to follow him. Space. 
on earth is done when by thy grace the victory's won in death's cold wave i will not flee since death through jordan leadeth me he leadeth me he leadeth me by
blazing sun shall pierce the night and I will rise among the saints my gaze transfixed on Jesus face what a day that will be oh praise the you for, so much to thank you for. You have blessed us beyond all measure, and we are so undeserving of your grace, of your love, of how you provide for us. But we thank you. We thank you for the opportunities that we had to sing, to express our worship through song, God. We thank you for that. And we thank you for this moment now that we get to worship you through our giving, that which you have given to us, we offer to you as an offering of thanks, trusting that you provide for us. We pray that this offering goes to the work of your kingdom, that it does things far and above anything that we can imagine for your glory and for the advancement of your church. We thank you for the opportunity to give this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. He's our rescuer, he's our rescuer, we are free from sin forevermore, oh how sweet the sound, oh how grace abounds, we will praise the Lord our rescuer, there is good news for the captive, good news for the shame. There is good news for the one who walked away. There is good news for the doubter, the one religion failed. For the good Lord has come to seek and save. He's our Man. Riches for the poor. 
Let's pray together. Father, you are our rescuer. And so today we come, Father, asking once again that we truly could experience the freedom that is only in this gospel, to be chainless, to be fearless here at the foot of Calvary. And so, Father, this time that we spend together in worship, this time now as we prepare to open this word, we pray that it would enliven us, that it would invigorate us, that it would ignite within us the joy and the passion that only you can provide through this life-changing gospel, the fact that we have a rescuer who has reached into the depths of darkness and set us free, bringing us into the kingdom of the Son whom you love. So, Father, we commit this time to you, and we ask that it would be pleasing in your sight. For we pray all these things in the name of our rescuer, Jesus, our Lord, and our Savior. Amen and amen. Uh, what a wonderful way to start worship as we, uh, like I said earlier, prepare to conclude this series on idolatry and the things that we have seen come through our lives that contribute to this worthless sense of worship. And, and I want to begin, perhaps in a little bit of an odd beginning point, I want to tell you about when I was younger, my, my love for chewing gum, right? Can I get an amen? Anybody else out there enjoy gum, right? Okay. And I would even go so far as to say I kind of considered myself at a younger age somewhat of a gum aficionado, okay? I enjoyed all sorts of different flavors. And uh, when I was with my dad, he always had this blue trident gum. And so that was when I wanted to be a little bit more sophisticated, more conscious of the, the breath factor. Uh, but really what I loved as a young kid was like the bubble tape, 
you know, six feet of bubble gum. That's pretty remarkable, okay? I was really into that. Uh, Big League Chew was also great. Now, it was dangerous, though, because it was so flavorful. Like, I wanted to eat it more than I wanted to chew it. And so I had to, like, be really careful with Big League Chew. Uh, but if I were to pinpoint the flavor of gum that was my favorite, right? Like, the, my first love when it comes to gum, it was Super Bubble, right? You remember Super Bubble? It was the red and blue and yellow packaging. It was just the perfect size, and, and we had it in the baseball dugout all the time. And, I mean, it, I loved it. And, and I have this kind of unique history with Super Bubble because my, my love for gum is, is one of the first and earliest memories I, I have when I really became aware of the power of desire in temptation. So I was about four or five years old, and I was living with my, my mom and my sister, and we were just about a block away from a convenience store. And so it wasn't uncommon for us to, to take some afternoon or a weekend or something and just walk down the block and go to the convenience store and pick out a snack, pick out some candy or something along those lines. And so I remember walking down there one time, the three of us, we walk into this convenience store and we kind of split up within, I'm not sure what my mom and my sister were getting, but, but there I saw it almost just kind of beckoning to me, right? This radiant, glorious picture of this box of super bubble bubble gum. And I saw it, and I just instinctively knew I had to have a piece. I mean, it was just something kind of came over me. Now, what was interesting was that I knew that if I had asked my mom to buy me a piece, she would have. But for whatever reason, that thought did not enter into my head at all. I mean, I literally was, was so enamored with it, I was just like, I'm going to take one. And, and it was my first thought that I was actually going to steal a piece of bubble gum as a five-year-old, okay? Now, I don't know where that thought came from because it's not like I was being raised by Bonnie and Clyde or any some sort of like criminal activity at home, but literally, that was my impulse. I'm gonna steal a piece of gum. Now, in a five-year-old's mind, you think you can get away with this, right? I mean, in, in some respects, I almost kind of felt like I was Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible, right? I was about to go on this amazing endeavor and I would be able to trick everyone. Nobody would know about this epic heist that I was about to uh, pull off, right? But what was really happening was something much more along the lines of those YouTube videos of like world's dumbest criminals, right? Because the Super Bubble was on the very front row facing the checkout counter, okay? So I had my back to the guy at the checkout counter, and I felt like that was sufficient to get away with this crime. And so I, I reach in, and I grab a piece, and I put it about halfway into my pocket when all of a sudden I hear his voice. I see what you're doing, boy. And I mean, I was scared out of my mind. I threw the gum back into the box, ran out of the store crying, okay, just sobbing tears. So not only was I a dumb criminal, apparently I was a really sensitive one as well. And so, so I'm like tearing off down the streets, just sobbing with, with the guilt of this sinful activity, this, this thievery that I tried to partake in. And I, I was terrified. Like I actually looked back down thinking, I'm either going to see the cops come after me or my mom. And I don't know which one's worse. You know, like, I don't know which one I want to see. Uh, ultimately, though, I saw my mom and my sister just casually walking down the street. And I thought that was a little unusual for what had just taken place. And I soon discovered that this clerk, I guess, out of the kindness of his heart, felt like he didn't need to tell my mom and that his little scare tactic was enough of a warning sign for me, which it was. I've never tried to steal anything ever again since that moment. It scarred me for life, okay? But that was really, the reason I share it with you is because that was honestly probably one of the first and earliest memories that I have in my life of recognizing the power of temptation, the power of desire, right, that, that leads you to this moment of just having to do something about it. 
Now, we're going to talk about several different idols today that, that can kind of erupt within our lifestyle, but the common thread that all of them share is that they tap into this human tendency towards desire. Now, we all have desires, and they can be good, they can be bad, but when they become problematic is when these desires give us this road towards addiction, where we keep going over and over and over again in a very destructive pattern. And that's really what we're going to begin to consider today is what are these things that, that lead us into this temptation? What is it that we greatly desire that can be so destructive? Because this is what idols do, right? They demand more and more while giving less and less until they ultimately demand everything and give nothing. And so when we begin to think about this, there are at least four or five different um, struggles with desire and addiction that I want us to, to try to hit on today. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to be as concise and quick as possible. I know that we have lunch and all this other stuff, but I want to hit on them, okay? And, and so, like I've done the last few weeks, a lot of statistics, um, a lot of things that I'm going to reference in terms of research. I, I probably won't cite all the specific sources. If you want those things, I can provide them to you later. But, but here's how I want us to, to, to progress through it. The first one I want us to look at is when you hear this problem of addiction— we tend to think of the common culprits, don't we? Right, the most popular ones tend to be drugs and alcohol. And so I, I wanna start there because I think that's an appropriate place to begin, right? The problem of addiction as it pertains to some of, the, some of these substances that often kind of work their way into our lives. And, and we can start with alcohol because it is a very prevalent um, substance that's just in the existence of our culture and in our world, correct? In fact, uh, the national survey by the Drug Use and Health uh, industry indicated that around 86.4% of people 18 and older have had alcohol at some point in their lives, right? And so that's just part of it. Now, discussions on alcohol, especially in churches, tend to be a little bit controversial because more often than not, you see churches kind of advocate an extreme position on one side or the other, right? They're either going to to have an extreme position of complete uh, abstaining from alcohol or they're going to have a complete negligence of it and just let anything go. I, I am not here today to enter into any sort of extreme policy on alcohol, okay? The, the two disclaimers that I would say about alcohol as we begin is what I would say are pretty evident in the scriptures. Number one, which is you're not to give yourself to drunkenness. Period, the end, right? I mean, like, there, there's really not an exception or a way around that in scriptures. The other thing we see in the scriptures is that we should follow the laws of the land, right? We need to submit to the authorities that's above us. And so when there's a, a legal age, to drink, we should abide by that. And there's good reason for that. Studies will show that children that engage in drinking uh, by the age of 15 or before are four times more likely to become alcoholics, right, and as opposed to those that wait to a legal age. So, so those two things are going to be the obvious parts of, of this sort of discussion that I want to advocate for. But more than that, I don't want us to look through just the lens of how it should be approached, but really understand the problem of addiction, Right, because everyone might encounter alcohol in some level. Right? It, it may transcend or, or begin with something that happens just at special occasions to then maybe every once in a while to then maybe just once a week or then maybe once a day. Before you know it, you need it consistently to feel a certain way, to act a certain way, to, to have this relief from stress. And when we find ourselves on that road, it becomes destructive. And I can say that to you because statistics show us that 88,000 people a year die of alcohol-related diseases, 88,000. Fills them. It costs uh, the, the health industry, I believe it's in the neighborhood of $223 billion 
for excessive alcohol consumption. It's a costly addiction. And we see it impact relationships. We see it impact so many different things. It impacts um, how you interact with family, how you interact with friends. It impacts our safety. Obviously, one of the most common threats of alcohol consumption is drinking and driving. And what most statistics say is that we have around 30 people every day that lose their life in an alcohol-related traffic accident. That's one person every 51 minutes. So what that means is, is before we leave here today, somebody will have lost their life as a result of an alcohol-related traffic accident. So it, it literally is destructive, right? It, it has that sort of impact on us. And so we need to be mindful of how some of these, these um, elements of addiction like alcohol can, can lead us down a very destructive path. But the one that I really want to, to speak to is not so much alcohol consumption, but what is often paired with this topic of addiction, which is drug use. Because what we see right now is this growing epidemic of this opioid crisis, if you're familiar with this, if you've been following this in the news at all. And it is reaching very concerning uh, kind of crisis levels of attention within our country. So, so opioids are what you find in pain relievers, right? You, you see it also in heroin. And so there's a lot of connectivity to this opioid usage through pain relievers, uh, prescription medication, as well as heroin addiction. In fact, 80% of heroin users typically use some sort of opioid um, drug that was prescribed to them at some point, 80% of them. And so what we're seeing is that in the 1990s, these pharmaceutical companies gave these false assurances to the medical industry saying, hey, these are not addictive, don't worry about it. And so they started to prescribe them in mass. And sure enough, as time wore on, we discovered that they're incredibly addictive. So much so that in 2015, 2 million Americans were identified as having some sort of struggle with substance abuse with opioids and pain relievers. Two million. And in that same year, 33,000 of them passed away or died from an overdose. It's costing, when you factor in drugs and alcohol, I believe it's around $442 billion that it's costing the country to deal with these issues. And when you look at overdose, I believe it's one person every 19 minutes in our country that is dying from an overdose of an opioid pain reliever or heroin. One every night. That means four people before we get out of this service today will have lost their life as a result of an overdose. It is absolutely destructive. But more than statistics, probably what has been the most compelling thing to me are the stories that you hear of it. I was going to read you one story, but for the sake of time, I'm going to have to just summarize it. But there's this, this feature article in the New Yorker that talks about how it's impacting areas of West Virginia that has really high levels of this addiction. And it talks about just parents going to their kids' softball games and, and ODing right there next to the bleachers while their 10 and their 7-year-old come and scream, wake up, wake up. The people are just constantly ODing in public places knowing that if they, if they do it in public, maybe they'll be found before they die. So they want to, to stop using, but they don't want to they, they die, and so they're trying to wrestle with how do they manage that. And I would just tell you as somebody that has, has personally seen this in my life, because several years ago, I found myself attending a funeral of one of my closest friends as a result of an overdose. And I'm not talking about a friend that like, I knew at school, or somebody that was just an acquaintance like my friend I played with every day after school. Right, we were on the same sports teams together. Overdose, and other friends that have dealt with it. And so you, we may sit there and, and rationalize that this is other people's problems, but what 
what the trends are showing us is that it's very likely some of you in this room are struggling with some sort of addiction to painkillers or some sort of addiction to alcohol. And if it's not you personally, you've probably been touched by it, right? It's probably been somebody you've known or it's happened in your family or it's happening in your community. And so this is something that we have to, to, tr to truly address to see the way in which it's impacting people. These are these, these impulses and these desires that lead to this destructive behavior to where it ultimately demands more and more while giving less and less. This is the work of idolatry. Now those oftentimes, we must acknowledge, do kind of feel like outliers, right? Even though they are growing in prevalence, and though I would argue that there are many of us in this room that have some sort of direct connection to them, what I really wanted to focus in on today was, was maybe not those extreme examples of addiction, even as common as they are, but the more subtle ones, the ones that are a little bit more camouflaged, the ones that are a little bit more alluring and, and really kind of impact all of us on some level. Now, if you journey back with me for a moment through my childhood, once I had put my days of burglary behind me and decided to walk away from uh, that sort of conduct and lifestyle, uh, I was the sort of kid that was very active, right? And I was always out playing with my friends. We were always out playing in the, in, the, in the front yard, playing football. We were playing basketball, playing baseball, jumping on the trampoline, riding bikes. A lot of activities as a young kid. And so as a kid, one of the things that you look for to get fuel for that activity is food, right? And so one of the favorite things that I love to do was snack time, right? I mean, to come home from school and to, to play hard and then run in and get some sort of snack. But as I have entered into parenthood, I've noticed how much snack time has changed, um, for my kids, they get home from school and we're like, here are your apples, here's your peanut butter, here's your hummus, your carrots, your veggies. And for me, when I got home, it was Diet Coke and an ice cream sandwich, like every day, man. I mean, and I loved ice cream sandwiches, man. I was obsessed with them. And that was one of the things that I quickly discovered in reflecting back on my childhood that was one of my tendencies. Um, I had this kind of obsessive draw towards food. And so I would, I would be obsessed with ice cream sandwiches or then peanut butter and jelly or then donuts or then cinnamon rolls. And I just had this compulsion to eat food. Now that is definitely something that when we stop and analyze, we can also see is this desire, these cravings that we have, these temptations to keep going back and to distort what our relationship with food should actually be. And I want to be sensitive to this because I, I know that this is something that many of us battle on different levels. And so I don't want to minimize it, right? But I do want us to acknowledge that we live in a country that has a pretty distorted view of food. And we see it in two ways. One is an overconsumption and one is not eating at all, right? So one third of Americans at this point are considered to struggle with obesity, and when you look at obesity, I believe it costs around $147 billion to treat obesity-related medical conditions, whether that's heart disease, type 2 diabetes, stroke, all these different health um, de uh, deficiencies that come with obesity, right? And so we, we have this, this impulse to overeat and to consume and to become obsessed with it on certain levels. But it's not just overeating. Sometimes it's this eating disorder. Right? These aversions to food, these, these unhealthy approaches towards our relationship with food, to our body image, or to weight regulation. And it is, it is rampant, especially among women, that it is one of the leading causes of death in Western societies amongst women. 
In fact, some of the statistics that I came across were that somewhere in the neighborhood between 10 to 50% of college girls have admitted to uh, binge eating only to then vomit later to control their weight. And that 50 to 60% of teenage girls nowadays feel that they're overweight, even though the reality is that the number is closer to 15 to 20. So they walk around with this constant idea that they don't look good enough. And all of that is connected to a disjointed and an unhealthy picture of either how we want to look or how we should treat food. Now, we could talk about this at length on individual levels and our own personal eating habits and how we might give in to certain cravings or temptations or addictions to food, but I also want us to take kind of a a step back a little bit and look at it culturally, look at it holistically. Uh, One of the things that we must never forget is there are around 815 million people in the world that suffer from chronic malnourishment. 815 million people that are regularly hungry, like starving, malnourished. I was reading this article in Johns Hopkins University's magazine, and it talked about the consumption practices of our country. And they had this amazing picture to bring the statistic to life. They said, uh, a picture of the Rose Bowl, right? Anybody know the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California, right? Um, we're not going to talk about the game that was played there this past season. Just forget about it. Just take it out of your memory. That's what I'm trying to do. Um, it's a huge football stadium, 92,500 some odd seats, okay? According to this magazine article, if you filled that stadium to the top with food, literally to the top, you know, broccoli, pork chops, whatever it is, literally to the top. That's how much food we waste in our country per day. 815 million people starving. And we can fill the Rose Bowl every day with food we're wasting. There's no doubt that when you look at our country, there is something off with this this propensity towards this distorted view of food. Now, I'm not saying you just overreact to it. The Bible obviously condones feasting, celebrating. It is to be enjoyed. But we have too many unhealthy relationships and connections with how we should approach food, right? Those impulses, those desires that get us in these unhealthy habits one way or the other. It becomes an idol that demands more and more and gives less and less. Now, as I also went through childhood and finished eating the ice cream sandwiches and drinking the Diet Cokes, ironic there, Um, I would also find other ways to eventually find entertainment with my friends. I'll never forget uh, when we were probably late elementary school, early junior high, the personal home computer really began to take shape. And the the first way in which you found um, enjoyment with the computer was the Oregon Trail on the floppy disk, right? Anybody Oregon Trail players in here? Thank you very much. It was awesome. That's an, that's an exaggeration, it wasn't that awesome, but, but we all played it anyway. And, and then all of a sudden, the internet, the internet arrived. And for us, it was AOL dial-up internet, right? And so like you heard the, you know, like that sort of thing. And so my friends would come over to my house, we would turn on the computer, and then we'd go play, because it would take forever for the computer to actually fire up. And then we'd come back in, and we'd click on the AOL icon, and then we'd go play, because it would take forever for the AOL icon to come up. And then all of a sudden, we had this, this web page in front of us and a little search bar. And, and I remember thinking, wow, this is crazy. You know, what, what can we search? You can search anything. You can look at any subject, anything that you want. This is before Google, before Yahoo, or any of those things. And, and I'll never forget, one of the first things my friends and I searched, moment of confession, stay with me, uh, was Cindy Crawford. 
I'm old, okay, it is what it is. But, but I, I don't know, but clearly young boys want to look at pretty girls, and so that's what we searched. So we typed the name, then we go play, because it would take forever for like a picture of a magazine cover to come up, right? Little did we know, the onslaught of images the internet would provide us. Now, I'm going to talk about this for a moment, but I'm going to be sensitive to younger ears. And so I think we all know what I'm talking about without me having to say some of the terminology. But do we realize just how insanely prolific it is? 30% of all internet traffic is related to this sort of content material. It's a $97 billion industry. Every second, 28,000 plus internet users are looking at that material. You know what that means? By the time we're done with this service, 139 million internet users will have looked at that material. There's one site that is purely driven by this material, and they uh, tracked that they had, uh, I guess, seen 4.5 billion hours watched last year. You know what 4.5 billion hours equates to? More than 5,000 centuries. That's how much is being consumed and watched. Now, you, you tend to think that it's, it's a male issue and temptation, and rightly so. 79% of 18 to 30-year-olds will admit to have seen this material within the last month. It is a common struggle amongst males. You know what's also crazy? The number for that same demographic for women is 76%. Almost just as high for women. It's no longer just a male or female issue. The average age of exposure now is 11 years old. And more often than not, it's happening on our first idol, a device that stays with them 24 hours a day. It is unbelievable how prolific it is. And the impulses that, that people are giving into with this idol and the damage that it's causing. Right, see what it does is it actually, once again, we've talked about this, it engages the dopamine in our brains that, that is this reward-based chemical. But what happens is, is that every time you go, you get desensitized to that level of dopamine, meaning that you need more each time you go back. And so what happens are these very scary and unhealthy trends begin to emerge that the content you begin to, to look at needs to become more and more intense. So much so that 56% of the the young males that were interviewed in this one survey indicated that they now are intrigued by content that they initially would have found disgusting and morally wrong. And that's the progression it leads you on. So much so that many of them admit now that they cannot even be attracted to an actual human because it's robbed them of that sort of uh, attraction. So it is one of the leading disruptors towards uh, marriage infidelity, broken marriages, it, it literally demands more and more and delivers less and less. It's an unbelievable impulse of desire and addiction that is completely destroying generations. Now, here's the common thread with all of those. One more that I want to quickly highlight. You know what really stood out to me in terms of impulse and cravings and desires that that kind of were these common threads amongst all of those. Did you notice that in every statistic that I offered, because it was in almost every study that I read, 
there's almost always a financial impact. Like, we have to tell us what it's costing us financially. $442 billion for drugs and alcohol, $147 billion for obesity, $97 billion for that illicit material on the internet. We always have some sort of quantifying economic figure of what these things cost us. You know why? Because we love money. That could perhaps be the strongest impulse of them all. Greed. Materialism. Constantly driven by what money can do for us. Now, there are numerous ways in which we can evaluate this because it wasn't always this way in our country. In fact, in the 1850s, the way in which most people defined and evaluated the well-being of a society was to look at these moral indicators, right? You looked at education and literacy and life expectancy and crime levels. That's how people define successful communities. But somewhere in the 19th century, things changed. There was a shift as capitalism really took root and people saw themselves as income producers, you began to see these trends in the progressive era that began to measure all these stats based on how many millions of dollars one could either generate or cost or all these different things like these statistics I shared with you this morning. That became commonplace. You had folks like Rockefeller and J.P. Morgan that invested in these economic measurements that ultimately helped lead to the creation of the gross net product, right, the GNP, all these ways in which we, we evaluate uh, financial success. And before you knew it, one of the common standards in our country was that self-worth was measured by net worth and how much we had. And so now we give so much of our desire towards money. And we'll, we'll change how we talk about it. Right, we'll refer to it as blessings. We'll talk about security, you know, retirement, savings, all these different things. I came across this really, really amazing article in the New York Times. It was an opinion piece uh, from a couple years ago. It was written by Sam Polk. You could search and look for it. I, uh, again, for the sake of time, let me just read for you one quote from this article. He was working on Wall Street, and he, he realized that through his propensity towards addictions, just how empty he felt with this endless pursuit of wealth, this guy that was making millions of dollars, right, an incredible amount of money, and how empty it was ultimately leaving him, and how, how he struggled to walk away from it, but when he finally did, and he rightly, in my opinion, pointed out the heart of the issue. He says, dozens of different types of 12-step support groups, including Clutterers Anonymous and Online Gamers Anonymous exist to help addicts of various types, yet there is no Wealth Addicts Anonymous. Why not? Because our culture supports and even lauds the addiction. Look at the magazine covers in any newsstand, plastered with the faces of celebrities and CEOs, the super rich are our cultural gods. I hope we all confront our part in enabling wealth addicts to exert so much influence over our country fascinating piece. And maybe we sit there and we, we do kind of what we always do and we play this comparison game. Well, I'm not, I don't have as much money as this person, so clearly it's not an issue for me. Now, granted, there is a place for stewardship, but listen, we need to have, once again, some appropriate global perspective. Nine out of ten American standard of living is higher than the global middle class. So let me just be very clear. From a global perspective, we're rich period, the end. And so what we do with money, how we pursue money, our love of money and the security we look for it to provide for us is incredibly addictive and dangerous. 
we must never forget that Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, is the one that said, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth. You cannot serve God and money. That's what the scriptures teach. See, these are the tricks of idolatry. They pull us in, these desires, these impulses, these temptations to demand more and more while giving less and less. So what do we do? 1 Corinthians chapter 10 gives us a good summary. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. I'll offer a few comments from this really, really insightful passage of Scripture that we get from Paul. I want to summarize for you the first five verses. What, what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 10 is he reminds us of God's deliverance out of, out of Egypt. This is such a frequent narrative that we see in the Scriptures, is the, the need for us to see God's deliverance and his rescue. And so he says how God blessed them. He was with them in the cloud. He was with them in the sea. They ate the same spiritual food, the manna from heaven. They had the same spiritual drink from the water, which was the rock of Christ. And he's talking about this amazing rescue, this incredible opportunity for them to be in the presence of God. And then, listen in verse 5, he says, but nevertheless, God was not pleased with them. And he scattered their bodies in the wilderness. Now that should be an incredibly chilling verse for all of us, right? To be able to experience the deliverance and the miracle of God and to still hear God say he was not pleased with them and he left them in the wilderness. What could cause that to happen? Verse 6, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. That's what we've been talking about. This, this phrase, setting your heart, means to greatly desire. Right? The, the impulses, the temptations, the inclinations of their heart was not directed towards their God, but towards evil things. Now, that word evil actually means to be ruinous. It's more than just something that it's against the law or breaking rules. It means it actually ruins you because your inability to acknowledge God is God. So the people set their hearts on evil things. They greatly desired evil things. And that's what led God's displeasure. So, so let's make sure we connect the dots there, y'all. What we see in these first six verses of 1 Corinthians 10 is that we can have this divine rescue. We can have this incredible deliverance. We can experience the miracles of God and still have him leave us in the wilderness. Why? Because our hearts remain fixated on evil things. And so we must guard against this worthless worship, this pursuit of things that lead and tap into our desires and lead us away from God and his divine plan for us, the people that we were created to be. What does it mean we need to do? Don't be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did and in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Do not be idolaters. That's his answer. You want to guard against putting your heart on evil things? Well, then don't pursue idolatry. And so then Paul goes into this really kind of a Bible history, which we don't have time for, but he essentially quotes Exodus 32, Numbers 14, 16, 21, 25, I believe, right? All these crazy stories, and the result was the same in all of them, death. 
right? It demands everything, right? And actually delivers nothing. That's the result of idolatry. It leads to destruction. That's where it takes us. And so rather than go back through all these different examples, though that should be your homework. Go back and read those stories. They're really fascinating and, and sobering on a lot of levels. Let's just look at the way in which Paul describes idolatry in his reference to those events, right? What does he say? He says, well, they indulged in revelry. They committed sexual immorality. They tested the Lord. They tested Christ. And then they grumbled, right? This is just one way to describe idolatry. So quickly summarizing that, to indulge in revelry is the the act in which they engaged in at the worshiping of the golden calf. This is that, that playful celebration that is really equated to licentiousness, kind of this moral latitude that they had, and it, it is often complemented with this sexual immorality, right? The lust of the flesh, the impulses of their desires. And then to test Christ. That's a really interesting phrase. Essentially what it means is, is that by their behavior, by their acts, they were saying that they didn't trust in God's ability to save them. But I mean, if you think about idolatry, that's exactly what it's saying, is that though I may acknowledge God, though I may see God, I don't know that he's sufficient enough to save me, so I'm going to give in to these other things that I think can fulfill me or meet my needs. I don't trust in his ability to save me. It's, it's a testing of God and his deliverance. And it also is complemented by this grumbling, which simply just means to be dissatisfied. I mean, how many things do we find ourselves pursuing because it's really driven by dissatisfaction somewhere deep within? We need one more drink, one more hit, one more image on a screen, one more meal, one more paycheck, just something else to make me feel satisfied, and it's never enough, right? This grumbling, and it always leads towards this destruction. This is the problem of idolatry, and so Paul reminds us of this, saying these were serving as warning signs to all of us. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear, dear friends, flee from idolatry. So Paul takes us through this warning sign, and then he gives us a beautiful reminder of what our posture should be in the gospel. Stand firm. Can I encourage you today, church, that, that there is no guarantee that following Jesus, following this gospel, is going to be easy. It is going to require strength. It is going to require resolve. So stand firm. The more we give in to the ways and the patterns of this world, the weaker this gospel looks. So stand firm. That's our call. No, there is no guarantee that it will be easy. But we must pursue that strength. We must pursue that stability. And here's how Paul says we should do it. He says, be careful. Be careful you don't fall. Literally, it means to look, to watch, be alert. I love that because it's a reminder to us that a lot of times we give in to these desires, we give in to these temptations, and we're just careless. We're not careful. And I feel like our carelessness typically is anchored in two different sort of mentalities. We're either ignorant or we're it's hubris. That's typically what gets in the way for us, right? Some of these things that we've talked about today, we don't even realize we're engaged in behavior that's destructive. It's ignorance. 
right? Not, not in a demeaning way. I'm just saying we truly just don't realize that some of the behavior we're engaging in, our obsession with money, our obsession with food, our obsession with, with some of these things we see on the screen, we don't see just how destructive they really are. And so part of the challenge in a series like this is that, yes, there are healthy ways to use all these things that we've talked about. Every week, there are healthy ways to use them, but we sometimes have to hold up a mirror to the ugly side to see that we have to be careful, right? If we just move around in that ignorance, we'll say, well, this isn't really harming me, and we don't realize that we are being led away towards destruction, right? We're giving in to these destructive patterns and these destructive behaviors. If it's not ignorance, it's hubris, right? Some of us are sitting there, and I've been there before, right, where you think, well, that won't happen to me. I've got things good. I've got a good approach to my job. I've got a good approach to finances. I've got a healthy relationship uh, with my spouse. I've got all these wonderful things going on. This isn't going to happen to me. If that's you, can I tell you, if that's your mentality, you are probably the most vulnerable for it to happen to. Be very clear. It can happen to any of us. Right? Why? Because we're all sinful. We must never forget our need for a savior. The minute that we give in to that pride that we're immune to these things or the moment that we become the most susceptible to give in to their deception. Be careful that you don't fall. Be vigilant against these temptations. Be vigilant against these desires and these idols. And so when we find ourselves in the midst of these things, Paul gives us a word of encouragement. Let me close with the way that he, he offers it so eloquently in the last few verses there. He says, no one has been overtaken by these temptations than, than one that is not common to humankind. Right? So if you feel overtaken, right, that you feel that there are some of these desires, some of these temptations, some of these addictions that you just can't shake, things that, that you know are controlling your life, and it feels as if you're overwhelming, part of what you need to understand is that you're not alone. You're not the first. And maybe these desires and these impulses manifest themselves in a lot of different ways, more than even just the list that I offered today, but something in your life that is addictive and disruptive and is leading you astray, and it feels as if it's choking the life out of you, let me tell you and remind you, you're not alone. Others have gone through it. And what, what Paul points to is not to your abilities and not to your resolve, but to three powerful words, God is faithful. <laughs> our dependency to get through these things is not in our abilities, but on the faithfulness of the living God. So can I just be very clear? Listen, if you are here struggling with anything like this, this is not a message where you say, well, I've got to go fix my life before I can come back there. No, we welcome you with open arms. We say, let us help you. Let us get you to the right place where you find the faithfulness of God that sets you free. Because what Paul says is that when we discover that he is faithful, he gives us an escape. He gives us a way out. He gives us the ability to endure it. And let me explain to you very clearly what that escape is. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our hope, our deliverance is in nothing else but Jesus our Savior. That's where we find the beauty of being set free that allows us to come into a room and seeing, let me be chainless, let me be fearless because I've been rescued by the blood of the Lamb. That's where we find our escape is through this gospel. 
right? We are able to come together and see what he has done, that this Jesus entered into our flesh, literally embracing all the temptations that you and I could imagine, and he resisted them, thereby making himself the perfect sacrifice that held him on the cross, and through the spilling of his blood, we find that forgiveness, and we find the hope that even death itself and sin has been defeated. This is the power of our deliverance that allows us to move through all these different things. And so Paul rightly draws us to reorient our minds, saying in view of this mercy that has been given to us through Jesus Christ, therefore let us offer ourselves not to indulgences, not to temptations, not to all these earthly impulses, but let us offer ourselves as living sacrifices to the living God. Because then we can see our spiritual act of worship to no longer be conformed to the patterns of this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our mind that we can test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. He calls us to worship. (laughs) That's the avenue forward. To be able to have the lens and the perspective of heaven to see that these impulses that we have, these earthly desires, pale in comparison to the ones that we should have for our risen king. John Piper said it so well. He is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That is the way forward. That is how we conquer these idols. And so the message is very simple. Not just for the, the subjects that we talked about today, but for the last several weeks. I want to offer the same words that Paul offers in verse 14. Whatever it is that you face, whatever idol that has its grip on you, whether it's technology or busyness or the impulses and the cravings of the flesh or something that we weren't able to get to, let us take heed to the living word of God. As Paul reminds us, therefore, dear friends, flee from idolatry. Take it seriously run away from it and run back into the loving arms of our resurrected king. Let's pray. Father, we once again celebrate that you are our rescuer. And too many times, Father, we take these impulses and we take these desires and we misplace them. And so I just offer a word of confession, Father, that each of us would be able to have the ability to see things in this world as you see them. That the the shimmer and the shine of this life would pale in comparison to the glory that we have in Jesus Christ. Father, that we would see we were created to reflect and to bear your image more than anything else. Father, may we not be a church that is given to worthless worship because of our pursuit of idols, but may we stand firm and be a beacon and a voice and a representation for this world to see what it means to live hopefully and fully for you. Father, today we worship you and we confess that we we surrender to you, transform our minds and help us to offer ourselves fully to this gospel. Father, let us flee from this idolatry and run to you. We run to this altar And we look once again and we say, what a wonderful Savior. Hallelujah. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen.
during this time of invitation, I would invite you to do some soul searching. Because a lot of times these idols are just hidden right underneath the surface and we don't even realize they're there. And so as we sing the, the song to come to the altar and to acknowledge our hurt, the things that, that often lead us astray, I would love for you to really give some thoughtful consideration to what that might be in your life and then to surrender it today so that you can discover who it is that you've been created to be, to be one that truly worships God fully in spirit and truth. Obviously, during this time of invitation, if you want to make a decision public, we want to celebrate that with you. You can join the church. You can uh, put your faith in Christ. You just need prayer. You can come forward. We'll pray with you. But for all of us, may this be a time in which we come not before each other, not to a time in a service or a song, but to come before the throne room of grace and to sing praise to the one who has set us free. Let's stand together and sing the song of invitation.
Amen. You all can be seated for just a quick moment. Uh, I want to remind you of just a few of those announcements. The Ben Clyburn concert coming up in a couple of weeks at the well on the 8th. But we also wanted to make room just at the end of our service for a quick announcement from the search committee. I'm going to invite Ben Bryant, who is one of the representatives from the search committee for the new student minister, to come up and give you all a quick update. And then once he's done, I'll come back up and offer a word of benediction. Hey, so uh, we just wanted you to know as a community that we've uh, started the search process. We're trying to figure out where we want to post the job application, or not application, job description to mm -hmm. uh, figure out good sources. We're, we're following the process that uh, we think that needs to be done. We feel that this is a very important, important task to uh, find somebody that's going to lead our students that are going to eventually become the new leaders of this church. Or wherever else that they go will be leaders of the church. So uh, we ask for your prayer. As uh, we pray, we want y'all to pray for the wisdom from God so that we can find the right person. God already knows who this is, but it's just a process to find that person. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Ben. It is. It's a great group of folks. We've started meeting fairly regularly. Uh, it's chaired by Becky Beiser. We've posted a lot of that, I believe, in the worship guide, so you can see the names of everyone uh, that's included. Uh, we've identified a few key groups within the church that we're going to want to visit with as well, and so we'll begin having some of those meetings and discussions, begin posting the job so we can begin receiving some applications. But uh, as Ben said, we covet your prayers, and we are eagerly expectant uh, for just a beautiful journey to unfold in us in, in the pursuit of a new student minister and, and trust God's provision in all of that. And so, continue to pray for us, and as we wrap up the service today, we just want to continue to encourage you all to take a look at the other things that are forthcoming, uh, to make sure you have a chance to attend those and be a part of all of that is going on as a, as a church family. So, that being said, let's stand together, and let me offer one final word of benediction. Father in heaven, we love you, and we come to this altar now. Once again, declaring what a wonderful Savior. And we sing with our lives, hallelujah, set us free from the bonds of sin and death. Let us flee from the struggles of idolatry that we may worship you as the image bearers that you've created us to be, both today, tomorrow, and forevermore. In the strong name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, amen and amen. Thank you all. Go in peace and have a wonderful Sunday.